Welcome everyone to episode 86. 86. Shit, that's like 14 episodes and then it's like a big, we need to do a big celebration for the 100th ep. I don't know what I'm going to do, but hopefully I can actually get my shit together and do something for it. Anyway, episode 86, I am going to be talking about codependent relationships. And really when, when you talk about being codependent, it's more one person who displays these kind of behaviors of being the codependent person. It's it's not really a situation. It sounds like it's two people that are equally dependent on each other and kind of need each other, but it's actually not that. It's different to that. And I'm obviously going to go into explaining what it's all about, what symptoms and warning signs you can kind of look out for to see it within yourself um, and, and to see it in people around you if they're like that with their partners. and you Codependence, it can also occur with family members. It's very common. Um, and then, of course, ways to, you know, kind of change and things that you can do. This is one of the episodes where I am going to highly recommend that if you, and I'll reiterate this at the end, of course, but if you definitely see yourself as being codependent, really the best thing you can do is seek professional help and get therapy. It is a bit of a process to break out of it. I know that, you know, we all kind of throw around the word there being like, oh, you know, that person's really codependent or those behaviors are codependent. And there are some behaviors that would be deemed maybe not as extreme, but being someone who is codependent is quite intense and quite overwhelming and it really does take over your life and you'll understand why in a moment. So I'm going to go into all of that. Before we do that, of course, my weekly update and then my interesting brain fact. Weekly update, I fucking finally signed up for a gym. I'm thrilled. This gym is in the city it is, um, I just signed up because I said to, I said to Tyrone, I'm like, I am not signing up for a 12 month contract. Like I hate these 12 month memberships. Don't at me. I don't know why. I just like, I hate it. I hate that people charge you for a joining fee. It's like, you should be paying me to join you cunt. Like fuck off. Hate all of that shit. So then Tyrone's like, why don't we go to fitness first? And I'm like, but that's such a big gym. They're surely going to have like a joining fee, whatever. Anyway, this is not spawn by the way. We went in to the one in the city, one of the ones in the city, and they're like, no, we don't have a joining fee. We're not locking anyone into contracts at the moment. It's just month to month. Anyway, I got the best deal ever. It is so fucking good. Month to month. I can cancel when I want because I obviously have this commitment for when it comes to a gym. And it has a fucking swimming pool and a sauna. And I've literally gone every single day since I started, which was on Sunday. And even if it's just for like a sauna, I'm thrilled. And I've been wanting to start doing like at least three saunas a week because I've been reading up a lot on the benefit of saunas for brain health and well, overall health in general, but how good it is for your brain health. I'll go into that. I'll need to like, I'll need to get some proper research and like present it to you guys in a very cohesive way for it to make sense. But basically there's a lot of good science backing, you know, a steam sauna for your brain health. So that has been my week. Okay, now let's talk about the brain fact for the day. So what I was looking into was a study that actually was published in 2012 by Predivan, is the guy's name, et al, and all the other authors. Also on a side note, wouldn't you fucking hate to be like the second, third, fourth or whatever author in a published paper and you're just known as et al for the rest of your life and not your actual name? Very sad. Anyway, this paper was investigating, they did a study investigating the effects of high intensity training, like HIIT training on adults like 50, around, like in their 50s, 
Um, and the effects of this high-intensity training, just three months of it, on selective attention and executive function. And how they tested it was they used something called a Stroop test. And what the Stroop test is, you guys can do it online. It's a really cool test. Basically, it tests your selective attention because the better you are at being selectively attentive, the better your productivity is, the better your focus is, the faster you are at processing things. Your processing speed is faster. And of course, that's that's a good thing. And as you get older, selective attention is one of the things that gets slower and slower. So they were trying to find ways to kind of prevent the slowdown of this selective attention. Now, the Stroop test is really good at testing selective attention because what it is is you'll be presented with words and the words are colour names, so red, blue, green, whatever, but the actual word will be in a different colour to what the word says. So if the word says red, it will be in blue, okay? And your job is to call out the colour of the word and not what the word says. So in the example that I just said, if the word says red, but it is written in blue writing, you have to selectively cancel out what the word actually says and call out blue, right? So it's actually quite hard to do. And as you get older, it gets harder and harder to do that for whatever reason. I don't know exactly why. So what they did was that they used the Stroop test and like a variation of the Stroop test to be the benchmark to um, to test people before the three months of high-intensity exercise and then after the three months of high-intensity exercise. And they found that there was quite a significant difference in reduced time to call out these, you know, names and colors in the strip test, to call out the correct answers in a strip test. So I found that really, really interesting. And I love that yet again, I'm finding studies that kind of prove what I bang on about all the time. I mean, there's literally thousands of them. It's nothing to do with me. I just like finding them and telling you guys about it. But yeah, this whole idea of how high intensity training is so good for your brain as far as like intelligence, productivity, executive function, selective, you know, all that shit. We fucking love that shit. So anything that requires inhibition as far as inhibiting information so you can be selective with with a certain thing um, is said to be improved by high-intensity training. And these results are only after three months. So if you're listening to this, I mean, everyone should be doing this, but if you're listening to this and you're in your 50s, fucking get into HIIT training. It's so good for you. Anyway, Now, let's go into the episode of today, codependency. So firstly, what exactly is it? Being codependent is not categorized as a mental health disorder. I know that a while back, I want to say maybe in the 80s, I could be wrong, but decades ago, they did kind of a lot of um, psychologists and, you know, therapists and doctors, they did try and kind of package this together so it would, you know, and give it a criteria to be able to have it named in the DSM. And the DSM stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So this is one of the handbooks that's used by healthcare professionals, mainly in the United States, um, but also in a lot of other countries around the world. I know that in Australia, it's also used a lot. Um, Anyway, so they wanted to have it included in the DSM. It did not get included for whatever reason. But it is very, it it presents alongside a lot of other mental health disorders or mood disorders as well. And I'll go into that in a bit, but it is not technically a mental health disorder. So 
Let's go back to kind of the origins of it. The concept of the codependent personality or codependent person actually started, this was being kind of described around addictions, okay? It, it originated around people with addictions. So it, it was normally the, the partner or the family member, the spouse, the child of someone with an addiction, okay? And a really good example of this, and if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend you watch at least one episode, is my 600-pound life. You, uh, 100% it, you see so many examples of really extreme cases of codependent um, personalities, okay? What it is, is somebody that makes things worse by enabling the addict's substance abuse and they do this by not drawing boundaries. And this happens within families or whatever. It's, it's denial, not being able to set boundaries. And it's this desperate want to be needed. It's like a need to be needed. So the partners of the person with the addiction or the relatives are the ones with the codependency, okay? They seek out people in general that need to be helped, need to be... Um, supported okay so it is the helper it is the quote-unquote caregiver in these particular addiction scenarios but also in other situations where it's not around a substance abuse or anyone battling an addiction it can also happen with people that have some sort of a mood disorder um, or some sort of like a personality disorder like narcissism okay it's really common for someone who is codependent to to get together with someone who is a narcissist. And I'm going to go into that in a second. And that it gets very, very messy. And when I talk about helping, because someone who's codependent, they really want to help a person, but ultimately they want to feel needed. And subconsciously, I doubt they're doing this on purpose because they're not bad people, but subconsciously, they don't want to help them to be better 100%. They just want to ease the person's pain. So if you look at the situation in my 600-pound life, they are enablers big time. They want to say, I don't want you suffering. I don't want you being hungry. I don't want you to be angry at me. I don't want you to be moody. I want you to be comfortable. I'm going to get you your food. And not only am I going to get you your food, but I'm going to get you the worst fucking food possible. So I'm enabling this addiction, but then you're happy with me. You feel that I'm fulfilling the requirements of the relationship. You feel that you can't live without me. And therefore I feel happy. I feel satisfied. I feel needed. I feel worthy. People with this codependency feel that their self-worth comes from being the fixer in the relationship, even though that ultimately they're not fixing anything. And if you look at it from a narcissist standpoint, if you're dating a narcissist, you are basically letting that person get away with really uh, dysfunctional behaviors and pushing people away and getting their way, being super angry, doing what they want. And you are enabling that for them. You're not standing up to them. You're not putting any boundaries because your number one need as someone who is codependent is to feel needed. And you would put that need above absolutely any anything else okay and you're going to see and I'm going to explain it a little bit at the end of the episode you're going to see how self-love and your relationship with yourself ties very 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 heavily with this because if you were to look at it from the perspective of someone who's very very comfortable in their own skin really loves themselves is really happy with who they are they're not going to really find themselves in that situation because they find their self-worth in other areas okay Now, how does it start? For a lot of people that have this 
problem, this kind of personality type, and again, not everyone, it starts in their childhood. It often is they either see their parents in that situation where one is the enabler and one really needs to be needed and wanted and doesn't stand up to the other partner and the other person is either someone who might have an addiction or be a narcissist or have have something that they're battling, right? Um, even though having said that, narcissists aren't aware that they're not battling anything, but they're the ones that kind of, they run the show, you know, you, it's it's all about them, whether they mean to or not. With an addict, it's it's all about in a relationship, if someone is battling an addiction, it's all about the addiction. It's how we're going to, you know, push through this. How is it affecting our lives? It kind of takes over, not just the individual, but also the relationship. And then, so that's, you know, when you're looking at substance abuse and things like that. But then from a narcissist standpoint, it takes over in the sense that a narcissist, it's like, it is all about me. It's my way or the highway. You take it or leave it kind of thing. Now, if you are someone that was, you know, in your childhood, you either witnessed it as your parents or you were the one that was the enabler for your parent in the sense that you don't want them to suffer. So you're going to kind of engage in all these behaviors and activities that means that the person who you are enabling is not going to suffer the consequences of their actions to like a crazy degree. Um, For example, you know, if you are Let's let's look at it from let's let's say hypothetically you were in a situation growing up you're a teenager whatever and your parent is an alcoholic but what they consider in inverted commas a functioning alcoholic in the sense that I don't like that obviously doesn't exist but it's this idea that they think that it's really not that bad because they're still going to work they're still doing everything everything's fine what the child might feel that or the teenager might feel that they have to do is say that there's no alcohol in the house and the parent gets in like a bad mood or might start acting out or might start being, you know, verbally abusive or whatever. They're acting in a way that's not pleasant. Now, you as the teenager, you want to fix the problem. So your solution to it is I'm going to make you feel better. I'm going to pacify this and I'm going to find you alcohol. Okay. So they have fixed the problem in the short term. That parent now feels a lot better. They're a lot more relaxed. They still think I'm functioning. Everything's fine. Now I'm calmer. I'm actually able to function now because I've had the alcohol when in reality, long-term, you're not actually helping them. The problem is with this idea of codependency is that you're not responsible for anything. You're not responsible to help them in the short term and you're definitely not responsible to help them in the long term. But your self-worth, someone with this codependency, their self-worth is on fixing the problem, but they only have the tools to fix the problem short term. It's not possible to pull someone out of an addiction. It is not possible to change somebody's narcissistic personality disorder and get them to snap out of it. That's not possible. That can only be done by the individual. So what you can do, however, is to make them feel good in the moment, pacify them, you know, like enable them. So that's this problem. You People with this disorder start to feel that their worth and who they are and their identity, it's all wrapped up in fixing the problem. And the more they can fix the problem in the short term, the more their partner or their relative will rely on them and make them feel wanted and needed. And it's kind of this this vicious circle where they feed off each other. Obviously very unhealthy for both parties, um, hence why it's not a good thing to be codependent in a codependent relationship. So what's going on here? I'm going to name a a few different things here. So there's a, a Fear of abandonment, that's a big one. So it's not its not to say that depending on someone is a bad thing. In pretty much every single relationship, 
you depend on your partner to some degree. And there's also an ebb and flow where someone might need to depend on the other more so than the other way around and then it switches and it's back and forth. That in and of itself is not unhealthy. That is normal and you do it not just romantically but with many relationships in your life. To be able to depend on someone is actually a good and healthy thing. It shows that I can let my walls down, I can let you help me. The problem is when you're trying to get your partner to depend on you as much as possible so they won't abandon you. That is – like, and a lot of people that have this codependent um, personality, they, they don't really do it intentionally. It's more – it's very much out of fear, 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 and they don't want to be abandoned. They don't want their partner to leave them. So they're trying to do all these things. They're scrambling to do all these things so that they are needed and wanted. It's not out of malice. Most of the time – it's not out of malice. But that's the issue. The, the difference is in a normal relationship, you just naturally depend on each other when it's necessary. In this kind of relationship, you are doing, you are putting things into practice so that the other person needs to depend on you even more. Okay. They need you to fix the problem because they're not going to fix it. You are the fixer and that is your role in the relationship and that's what makes you feel validated. Okay, the next thing that's going on is that they find their sense of purpose or their identity in this constant back and forth of enabling, helping, enabling, helping, okay? They don't actually want to solve the problem at hand, okay? They don't want to do that. They just want to make you feel that you are there for them, okay? So if the person was to fully get better, to remit, then that codependent that codependent person would lose their identity. They don't really have a purpose in that relationship anymore, right? Again, to reiterate, they need to be needed. Now, kind of going on a bit of a tangent, again, talking about my 600-pound life, there was a particular episode that I watched and it was this woman who was married and the husband did absolutely everything for her. He would wake up in the morning, help her undress, get in the shower, shower. She obviously couldn't do it for herself. She wasn't physically able to do so. And then he would take her to the couch, she'd sit down, and then he would start by preparing her the most hectic breakfast you can imagine. And then he'd go to work, and then he would get his daughter to pick up lunch, and then he would then come home with this massive dinner like hectic takeout food, whatever, and she would be on the couch all day long and he would be feeding her. And if he was ever late, then she would get all upset. So then he would kind of compensate by getting more of her favorite stuff or whatever. Okay, so he was always the enabler. Then she got on this show, 600 Pound Life, and she went to get help. And she was one of one of the people that really did, like, did everything to the T, lost all this weight, went on this crazy self-help journey. And it turns out that when she started going on this journey, her husband started having an affair, cheating on her because he was obviously seeing that she was getting better by herself. And I think he realized, I mean – Terrible that he did it, obviously fucking terrible. But I think in his head he realized I am not needed in this relationship. I have no worth, no, no, like I'm not validated anymore. I don't feel validated. She's better without me. Um, and he was probably scrambling for attention somewhere else to feel validated through someone else, hence him going and having an affair. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the people that are really, really insecure within themselves, they can't totally leave a relationship and until 
they're in another relationship or not, not necessarily that they would cheat, but a lot of people will be like, I need to see that there's definitely the possibility for me for this other relationship before I leave, especially somebody who is, who is the codependent one. They're rarely going to actively leave a relationship, but they will feel very threatened if their partner starts making big leaps and bounds to help themselves. They're going to feel like they no longer have a purpose in not just a relationship, but in life. They, they, their identity for their own self is what they are able to do within the relationship. It sounds really sad, but it's, it sounds like it's really needy, but it's a person who gets their self-worth, self-esteem through basically being in an unhealthy relationship through that need to be needed. So it's not, not wanting to draw boundaries and not wanting to entangle themselves in the other person's life. Because if they do that, if they were to start saying, no, I'm not going to get this for you, or no, I'm not going to enable you, they would be terrified that their partner would get angry enough and leave them or get angry enough and do something hurtful to them, something like that, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a lot out of fear and wanting to please the partner but also feel needed, okay? Now, this can happen again, like I mentioned before, with narcissistic people in your life, whether it's friends, parents, your partner. If it's, let's say it's it's your parents, you, let's say they're quite volatile and narcissistic and it's their way or the highway, especially when you're still living with them or every time you have to deal with them, you might grow up thinking that the best thing to do is to A, get them to love you and for you to be the favorite, but B, not rock the boat at all. So they need you because they've probably pushed everyone else away and you're the one that feels needed and that's where you get your validation from. They might do really irrational things and have like terrible behavior and treat everyone else like shit, but you're not going to stand up to them. You're going to kind of even agree with them when you don't agree. You kind of blend your personality into their personality so they can't get angry at you because you're kind of mirroring back to them what they're saying, what they're doing, saying, yep, that's okay. Yes, I agree. No, you're right. That person is a dickhead. You're not the dickhead. All of that kind of enable, enable, enable. So that way you are not only that person's favorite person, but kind of the only person that that person wants to hang around with, especially if they're someone that's pushed everyone else away. And that's very common with narcissistic parents. Another example that I want to give for a relationship of enabling, because it, it sometimes you hear enabling and you'd think, oh my God, I'm not an enabler. I don't, you know, in the example that I gave before, you are, that person is literally bringing like excessive amounts of food to their partner when that partner is not even able to move anymore because of their weight. Okay. So that's, that's a very clear, obvious form of enabling. But another form of enabling would be, say you are dating a, someone who gambles their money away you don't want to stand up to them. You don't want to say, look, like we, we have to split our accounts or you're going to have to pay for your things. And if you blow that money, then too bad. You're, you don't want to rock the boat. So instead what you do is if your partner went and blew their paycheck that week at the pokies, your way of enabling would be to offer to pay their part of the rent, still put food on the table, not make a big fuss about it at all. Being like, it's fine. No, you're okay. It's fine. Like, And so that person obviously has not suffered the repercussions of their actions whatsoever. The same goes for any kind of, any behavior at all. If, if you're not letting that person suffer the the consequences of their actions, which they need to in order to change, then you are enabling them. 
If you really want to help somebody, you have to allow for them to suffer the consequences of their actions. You are not responsible to dampen down those consequences because then they're never truly going to learn. It is, we are all deserving. We actually deserve it, okay? I wouldn't take that away from anyone because that is how you learn and that is how you grow through life and that is how you have experiences. If you were raising a child, you would want them to understand consequences to their actions. So then when they grew up and when they were out in the world, they would understand that they were taught a certain way, behave a certain way, treat people a certain way. Because if they don't, then they're not going to be loved, they're not going to have friends or they're going to be in fucking prison because they're doing something terrible, okay? So to withhold that from somebody is very detrimental for that person long-term, but obviously, as you can tell by everything I've been saying so far, it's it, it's very helpful for the codependent person because it keeps their partner or their friend or relative relying on them because they couldn't, they couldn't live behaving this way at, like away from them in, in a normal, healthy relationship. Now let's go into warning signs because sometimes you might be someone who is codependent, but you might be dating someone that doesn't exhibit such extreme scenarios that I've just explained. You might be someone that, for lack of a better word, is mildly codependent or you're in a mildly codependent relationship. I don't know if that's an actual term, but I guess you get what I mean. So let's get into a bunch of warning signs. One, uncertainty of self. So do you find that when you're in a relationship, you are clouded of knowing if you just really need them or if you're in love with them. It's this uncertainty. You're not quite sure which of the two it is if you were to coldly look at it, okay? It interferes with good relationships and it interferes with your relationship with yourself big time. The next one is, do you find it really difficult to be assertive in a relationship? And again, when I, when I say relationship, uh, it's, it's all kinds of relationships. This is not exclusive to romantic relationships. Very common in romantic relationships, but definitely not exclusive. Do you find it hard to be assertive to set boundaries? Like you are terrified to set the boundary because you're worried that it's either going to start a fight or, you, or, or the extreme cases, you're worried that they'll leave you, that they'll turn around and say, what? Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me that I can't do that. Goodbye. So then in order to avoid that, you just cannot set a boundary. You can't say no. You cannot be assertive. Does the fear of them leaving you make you do things that you wouldn't normally do or make you behave in a way that you wouldn't normally behave or, or start, like you might start engaging in activities that you don't really like, but you pretend that you do for that person. Or you might start smoking because your partner likes smoking and for you, you're like, I don't really love it, but you know, I'm just going to do it. Or, or, or you stop doing certain things that really are part of you because you're scared that they'll leave you. So say you're a really social person that likes going out. Do you then start... Um, staying at home with them all the time and acting like you prefer to stay at home, even though deep down you would actually like to be more social? Do you stop hanging out with your friends and hanging out with all of that just to be what your partner wants you to be? And and not just to be what your partner wants you to be, but also to avoid them getting annoyed at you or avoid them abandoning you because you think in your head, if I'm too different or if I'm too much of my old self, they might leave me because I'm not showing them that I'm putting them above me. Which leads me on to the next one, which is do you always put them in front of you and before you in every situation? You always have them as the priority and you never put yourself as a priority, which then kind of leads to do you feel that you have low self-esteem in general, not just within the relationship. Um, even though, and then another one, which is really interesting, even though you can't set boundaries, 
you have a need for controlling the small situations within the relationship. Like you want to feel like you're in control because of this fear of abandonment. So it's kind of like it's kind of like the two sides of of the sword, if you want to look at it. There's the the idea of like, you know, I'll let you do whatever you want. I'm not going to stand up to you. I'm not going to do this. But at the same time, you're you're trying to control the situation and you do that by, you know, being the fixer. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help, 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 help. I'll enable, I'll do whatever for you to need me. Do you always feel responsible for solving all the problems in the relationship. And if it wasn't for you solving the problems, then the problem would never get solved or the relationship would break down. Or here's a big one and it happens in narcissistic relationships. If you have a big fight and you're not talking to each other, like say you're on the phone and you hang up and you're not talking to each other, you know that if it's not for you calling them back and for you crawling back, that person would never call you back. So again, it comes down to this fear of abandonment. So you're always the one who is who feels genuinely responsible for solving every problem, even if you know for a fact that they started the issue. You feel, another one, you feel worthless if you are not meeting their needs. Like you feel like less of a person if you're not giving them what they want. They, whether it's because they make you feel that way or it's because you build up this belief in your head, it often, it's both of them normally in these relationships, but you feel that your self-worth is kind of dependent on meeting your partner's or, or that person's needs. And then another one is you well, two more. One of them is you're in denial. A big, a big one is in denial saying, no, I genuinely want to help them. I am helping them. I am helping them. But all your actions are showing that you're just doing this enabling behavior, but not helping them become a better person for themselves, even if it meant the relationship breaking down. So that's kind of a really good way to look at it. You've got to think, if I knew that this person would be a better person and would grow or have chance of being a better person, but it meant us breaking up because they would push me away, I would still do it versus no, I'll do whatever it takes for us to stay together, even if it means them continuing down this path. As long as we stay together, then then so be it. Um, and that's where the denial comes in. And then another one is you don't feel complete. You need to be in the relationship for your identity to be complete. And this comes with a lot of a lot of people that are codependent are also serial monogamists. And it doesn't say that serial monogamists are codependent people, not at all. But people that are codependent often bounce from relationship relationship to relationship and they seek out people who can satisfy these feelings of insecurities in them. It's very unlikely that somebody who is a hardcore you know, codependent person, it's very unlikely that they're going to start dating someone who is, who, you know, is, is really self-aware, really confident in their own skin, is really big on working on, on all their whatever issues that they may have that arise and working through it and being a better person. They're probably not going to, not going to feel satisfied in that relationship because they're not needed. Their partner's not going to depend on them to the extent that they can't live without them. Okay. So they seek out people who need to be saved, who have these problems that they, they almost can't live without a partner. They, someone who's codependent needs to find these people. That they, and they look at themselves as fixers. Oh, I'm a fixer, I'm a fixer, I'm a fixer. But they never actually fix the problem. They're just there to, to fix the little fires day in, day out. So that's kind of all the, the warning signs, I guess, you want to look for. 
not just in yourself, but there might be somebody in your life that is like that, or you might be identifying this from maybe your past, a past relationship or a past or something in your childhood. You might see it in your friends or siblings or whatever, but it is something that I guess the the beauty of it is that one of the best ways to start changing from that kind of personality is extreme awareness because like I said denial is a big one but if you can start becoming truly aware of these patterns and these behaviors and this crazy need for worth and validation and how you can only get that through the relationship that's actually unlike a lot of other um, kind of personality traits or and like I said this isn't a, a disorder as such but unlike other disorders Sometimes self-awareness isn't enough, whereas in this situation, self-awareness can go a very long way and you can start to really see a pattern and very quickly start to be like, wow, this is quite unhealthy for myself or the relationship and it's actually never, the the major problems are never going to change. But obviously it's better if it's obviously guided in a therapy session with a professional, like a psychologist. So if you are aware of it, the, f- the best thing you can do is speak to people that, that would probably understand your situation. So it might be a sibling if you're both in that s- situation and that's a really good way to start discussing it and putting it out on the table and, and really unpacking what's going on. Or it might be a friend that's watching you in your relationship behave the way you're behaving. It could be anyone. But you start to talk to people around you and you start to get a bit of insight and the people that, that you think would understand you or, of course, like I said, a therapist. Now, it's super important once you do identify this to get a support network around you. There's actually, like I said, it started off being identified as something of partners with people who are battling a, a you know a substance abuse problem or some sort of an addiction. That there are even there's a lot of support groups out there, and this is slightly on a slight tangent, but it, it is relevant. There's a lot of support groups out there. Of course, like you've got AA and NA and all of that for people who have the substance abuse problems, but then you also have support groups for relatives and partners of people who are battling these these addictions because they themselves need to be supported. They need to know how to best support how to best support someone without enabling them. And you need that support network. The moment you start meeting people who are going through what you've gone through, then you realize, wow, okay, I'm not going crazy. I'm I'm understanding that this, this is something that is experienced by other people and you can start to learn how they have overcome it or tools that they've put into place or that you can recover from it and that you can also leave that relationship and still find your worth outside of that relationship. So support network is absolutely vital for that. And if you are someone who is in this relationship, you are going to feel, if you're co- a codependent person, you are going to feel awful if you leave the relationship. And that's natural to feel that way. You're going to feel awful because you're going to feel that you couldn't help them, that you couldn't fix them. And on top of that, you're going to feel like you're the one to blame for the relationship breaking down. Like you didn't play your part. You couldn't be a good enough partner. And that's why it broke down. So you're going to be met with all these feelings of guilt and responsibility and you're going to feel very, very uncomfortable and that's why most people stay because they can't fathom that feeling. Even when they identify what's going on, they struggle to leave. So that's a normal thing to be going through and that's why 
that's why for this particular thing, it's not as easy to say, these are the hacks that you need to do and just do it. This is why you probably need a support network because it is very much based around your self-worth and your identity and you're likely not going to leave unless you have that support. Now, this is where it also ties in very, 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 very heavily with self-love. If at the same time as identifying these behaviors or helping your friend identify these behaviors, if at the same time you're able to start doing a lot of work around self-love and self-worth and validation, and I've got a lot of podcasts around that, then you are less likely to feel that you have to stay because that's where you start to realize that, A, your worth is not linked to a relationship, is not linked to another person, no matter how close that person is to you. You start to understand where your responsibility starts and where it ends and where the other person's responsibility starts and ends. And there, there isn't really an overlap when it comes to someone needing to help themselves. That is, unfortunately, it is up to them to do that. And you start to realize that you are not to blame. You're not responsible. Even if that person turns around and says, this is your fault. This is this, this is that. Someone who starts building up a really healthy amount of self-love is able to walk away in a situation where they are being told, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. Someone who's got low self-esteem, if they're being told this relationship is breaking down because of something you did or something that you didn't do enough of, they will stay because they cannot fathom someone that they love, even if even if the relationship is toxic, they can't fathom that person thinking the worst of them. So even if it means them having a horrendous time and having like a really like going through anxiety and depression, they would rather stay and have their partner think highly of them than leave and be happy, quote unquote happy, they'll they'll eventually become happy but thinking that someone thinks that they did wrong, that that they are the cause of, of the relationship breaking down. They're the cause that something never got better. When you start to genuinely move where you place your self-worth and not putting it in the relationship and not putting it in the opinion of your partner or parent or friend, and when you take it away and put it in your hands, then you find it a lot easier, still difficult, but a lot easier to make that transition and exit that relationship because it sounds awful and I know you want to help people, but but when you're that intertwined and especially if you're codependent, you are not helping the other person and worse, you are not helping yourself. You are literally making your own life an absolute misery because you are kind of, you're, you've turned yourself into a hostage of a situation that has been created. Now, it's very, very, very normal for most people, codependent or not, to want to seek validation in other people, okay? Well, I put up on my Instagram um, like a couple of weeks ago one of the questions from my card game and the question was, I wish I didn't need dot, dot, dot from other people. And I would say like there were hundreds of responses and I would say 90% of them were, I wish I didn't need to feel validated by other people. Okay. So imagine then somebody who, or it could be yourself, who has no self-worth, they're going to need that validation from people around them. And that's where they find themselves stuck in these toxic cycles. And they perpetuate the toxic situation unintentionally because it is the only way that they feel validated. It is the only way that they feel worthy. So I feel like I need to do more podcasts on validation, self-worth, all of that and finding it. But there are already some there that you can listen to if you feel that this might be you. And it's this whole idea of, of shifting where you place your worth. And there are, there are very good tools 
uh, and ways to do that for yourself. So to wrap up this whole episode, firstly, I hope that that's helped you identify if you actually are codependent or not. It's probably also hopefully gotten you to realize what like a true codependent relationship is versus when people like kind of lightly throw throw around the term when, when someone just seems like really, really needing a relationship but isn't displaying these enabling behaviors. Um, and A, so I hope it's helped you discover that. And then B, if you have identified that that is you, I hope it's kind of pushed you to do something about it and seek the help. This is one situation where I really would encourage you to speak to a therapist, to speak to a psychologist about it because you need all the support you can get if you are someone who displays these codependent tendencies, for sure. You need your support network. You need a therapist. A therapist is great because they're an unbiased party that's going to help you see things quite clearly. But then, of course, separate to that, find a support network of people that have also experienced what you are experiencing, even if the situation's not identical to yours. So hopefully that has cleared up a few things for you. It's helped you understand what it is. And if you are codependent, there's a lot that can be done. It is one of the the things where self-awareness can actually go a very, very long way in helping you change that and finding your happiness and finding your worth within yourself. Because, you know, when you step away and when you have that moment to detach yourself from it, you realize that you actually can survive without that person and you can survive alone. I think a lot of people are just traumatized at the thought of being single because where are they getting their self-worth from then if, it, if it's not with their partner? And I think they think, I, can't, I won't survive, I'm going to hate myself, but it's not the case. And being able to step away, being able to be really aware of what was going on is the first and most important step in the whole process. So guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope that was helpful. Love you guys all so much. And I will speak to you next episode. As always, please remember, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.